Hello and welcome or welcome back to my channel. Today's video is part two of the Bain family murders story. In part one, we covered the events of June 20th, 1994, when five members of the Bain family were found shot dead in their house in 65 Every Street, Dunedin, New Zealand. They left one surviving son, David Bain, who was 22 at the time of the killings. Four days after the killings, David was arrested. Now, in part two, we're going to take a deep dive into the family's background, figure out exactly what was going on and why police were led to believe that it could be David who was responsible. It has never been suggested that anyone other than David or Robin could be responsible for these killings. And whoever it was, was definitely responsible for all of them. So, here in New Zealand, the question has always been, who did it? Was it David or was it Robin? This story has been starting fights over the dinner table since 1994 and I am very excited about the story. This was the case that started it all for me and got me really excited about true crime. I have healthy debates with my friends and my family about who we think did it and I am very excited and curious to hear what you guys think about who did it. So as I mentioned in part one, I'm going to lay out all the facts, everything that happened and then in part three at the end of the video, I will share my own thoughts about who I think is responsible. Anyway, let's get into it. If you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you hit that subscribe button and click the notification bell so you get notified the second I drop part three in this series. You can always change your mind later and I promise you won't be disappointed. So the Bain story truly begins in August 1969 in New Zealand when 33-year-old Robin Irving Bain married 25-year-old Margaret Arawa Cullen at the First Church in Central Dunedin. They both came from strong Presbyterian families and each of them were the oldest of four children. They met through church after Robin moved to Dunedin from Northland, where he taught at small schools. Margaret was also a teacher at the Dunedin Kindergarten Teachers College. She was known to be a little loud, a little cruel in her comments, and unfortunately for her, for her overpowering body odour. Imagine being known for having overpowering body odour. Outside work, the two led a youth group at the Anderson's Bay Presbyterian Church. They were a cheerful, good-natured couple, even though the two of them had very different personalities. Margaret was loud and extroverted, while Robin was serious and quiet. On the 27th of March, 1972, the two had their first child, and they named him David Cullen Bain. Robin was interested in missionary work, and he'd already done a stint in Papua New Guinea before he married Margaret. He was keen to return, and in January 1974, the family left Dunedin to work for the Presbyterian Church in Gorlam, a small town near Rabul on the island of New Britain. Robin was the deputy principal at the Gorlam Teachers College. He had a lot on his plate and friends say that he was just flat out all the time. Margaret gave birth to Arawa Mary on June 26, 1974. She'd studied anthropology at university and felt very at home immersing herself in the local culture, beliefs and traditional healing practices. Margaret got so swept up in this way of life that her other responsibilities began to slip. The the house was dirty and unhygienic, but despite that, Margaret and Robin welcomed Laniette Margaret on March 19th, 1976. About three years later, in January 1979, the Baines moved to the capital of Papua New Guinea, Port Moresby, where Robin took up a new post as senior lecturer at the government's teachers college. The family moved to a big colonial house in a compound for expatriate staff. Stephen was born on January 1st, 1980. Margaret had decided to homeschool the children, but she wasn't always successful at it, and David and Laniette could hardly read for years. David enrolled in an international school close to the compound when he was aged 11. He did well at music but he was relentlessly bullied. Because of this, Margaret withdrew him from the school 
school in 1987 and David amused himself in the compound. Residents describe David as aloof, solitary and an emotionally blank teenager. But I do feel like, you know, what teenager isn't, especially if you're being picked on. But they did also notice that he seemed to be unusually close to his mother. The Baines earned a reputation for being disorganized, unconventional hippies. They would let the children run around naked, which was highly frowned upon by the locals. The Bain house was so dirty, chaotic, and disgusting that friends and visitors would often refuse to go back after visiting even just once. One friend stated to the police that she'd never seen anything like it in her life. She said that everything was mixed up. She said that the dirty dishes were piled high, there was old food, there was fat dripping down the walls, dirty underwear was mixed up with clean clothes. It was just a disaster. And as the kids grew older, Margaret began to worry about the children. She feared that as they grew older, they'd start to develop their own thoughts about things, that they'd push back against her, and that she wouldn't have as much control over them anymore. So she reached out to a family friend who was a psychologist for help. The psychologist decided to come and interview each family member to give Margaret a recommendation on the best course of treatment. But Margaret didn't listen. She loved to talk and she just talked and talked in a continuous stream of words. Margaret and Robin shared the strange belief that the outside world was full of evil and that they were raising their children in this beautiful, wonderful way, protected from all harmful outside influences. But when the psychologist spoke to their oldest daughter, Arawa, she said that all she ever wanted to do was go to a school and be like a normal kid. And David, as the oldest child, often bore the brunt of Margaret's insanity. When the psychologist interviewed Robin, she got the strong impression that Robin had just been beaten down by Margaret after years and years. He was so dominated by Margaret that he'd just become hollow and emotionless and just a shell of a man, really. Margaret and Robin grew increasingly estranged. But Margaret was desperate to restart their sex life, even though she treated Robin like shit. And all she ever did was put him down. While they were in Papua New Guinea, Margaret was gradually deteriorating. She kept a series of diaries during this time, and they show that Margaret appeared to be interested in only three things. Bottling fruit, video movies, like popular American movies, and demons. The Baines returned to Dunedin in December of 1988, and they settled into their Every Street house that they'd bought before they moved to Papua New Guinea. But their transition from their expat life in Port Moresby to Dunedin was not a smooth one. The house was already in a sorry state when they moved into it, and it wasn't long before the chaos evident in their PNG homes was soon repeated in Dunedin. They also seemed to just have a string of bad luck. The children really struggled at school. Robin couldn't find a job and Margaret felt badly treated and let down by the church. By 1990, Margaret's relationship with Robin had deteriorated to the extent that she moved into a caravan out the back of the house. Her diary entries from this time detail how she viewed the caravan as her temple to God and her sacred ground. She felt that the house was too full of evil and there was no safe space for her inside. She worried about the devil in her family and the devil leading people to behave in particular ways. She referred to her husband Robin as Belial or Beelzebub, both biblical terms for the devil. In her diary she shortened Belial to Bell. But it wasn't just Robin who was full of Bell. Sometimes she'd return home to find the house full of Bell. At a party at her sister's house she claimed that the food was contaminated by Bell. All of David's physical problems were just examples of Bell in him. Sometimes David was the son of Belial himself. Margaret would spend full days lying in bed meditating and crying. When Robin would come out to check on her, she'd just yell at him because he was too full of Belle. The children would take turns going out to the caravan and talking about their feelings with their mother. But the cold Dunedin weather 
put a dampener on Margaret's sacred space and it wasn't long before she moved back into the house and Robin was sent to live in the caravan. Margaret would often call family meetings to focus on their spirituality, but she would write that the family were always letting her down. She would even rank her family members according to the amount of bell they had in them. David was usually at the top with the least amount of bell and Robin always at the bottom with the most. Margaret was right into alternative theories and she'd often concoct her own tonics to heal her ailments, such as combining urine and phlegm to treat a cold. David and Arawa went to Bayfield High School, and though Arawa threw herself into school life making many new friends, David and Laniette struggled. David was teased about his lankiness and his ears, and he often sat alone at lunchtimes. In his seventh form year, things improved when he joined the school's choirs, started running, and took the lead role in the school production of The Sound of Music. David befriended a girl called Caroline, and they decided to go to the Bayfield High School ball together, which is like New Zealand's version of the prom. But Caroline made it clear that she only wanted to go as friends. The day before the ball, they went ice skating together. And that's when the phone calls started. David rang Caroline every single day after school after that. All he wanted to do was talk for hours on end every single day. Caroline felt completely overwhelmed and smothered and told David to back off. She described David as being very all or nothing and said he had no idea how to be a normal friend. He wanted to have full control over their friendship, including where they went, who they spoke to. It was all about what David wanted or he'd ignore her completely. Caroline said, quote, I found him unbearably weird and creepy as time went on, end quote. Arawa's friend Greer spent time with the family and also found them a bit strange. But she did think David was quirky and funny, and he impressed her when he performed on stage. But all of that changed in the weeks before the murders when her boyfriend, who'd been David's classmate, warned her that David had told him of a rape fantasy. She felt disgusted by David after that. Arawa and Laniette's friends could see that things weren't going so well for them at home. The Bane girls would confide of them of all the difficulties they had with their mother, including that Margaret just stayed in bed all day, every day even on Christmas Day. And if Arawa somehow managed to upset Margaret, she would go weeks without speaking to her. Margaret did nothing to maintain the house. All the chores fell on the children, and the house was always a mess. There were stacks of dishes, all of the preserved fruit that Margaret was obsessed with making would always go rotten, and the bulk of it fell on David to manage. In the school holidays, the kids would have huge lists of chores, some of them taking a full eight hours to complete. Arawa and Laniette's friends never liked to stay at the Bang house because it was so gross and messy, and they felt unsafe around David. He had a manic energy and was uptight and intense. One of David's friends later told police of a concerning omission he'd made to him during a sleepover one night. David told him of a girl who lived across the street that he'd often see when he went out running in the mornings. He told his friend that he had a crush on her and he got excited whenever they spoke. He told his friend that if he really wanted to, he could rape her and use his paper round as an alibi. He explained that he could deliver half his papers earlier than usual, freeing up the time in the morning and then deliver the other half at the usual time when people would normally see him. He even had an entire book detailing the exact times that he would see certain people on his run. David befriended another woman who became a running buddy of his. She said that after meeting the Bain family several times she became very concerned about David's well-being. She thought the family was very strange and that David was like a ticking time bomb. She noticed that everything in the Bain world revolved around Margaret and that David's life was very structured as determined by his mother. So as you can imagine, Margaret had earned quite the reputation for being a little 
little bit mad. Neighbours described her as flaky, opinionated, you'd never get a word in edgewise if you got into a conversation with her, as well as being strong-minded and unusual. And also, both Robin and Margaret were hoarders. Margaret just loved going to garage sales on the weekends and bringing back carloads of crap to fill their already overcrowded and cluttered house. But Robin would do the same, quickly filling the outdoor area with random bits and pieces of junk. In August 1990, Robin took the position of relieving principal at Tairi Beach Primary School. It was about an hour's drive away. The role was a major step down for Robin from what he'd been doing in PNG, but at least he had a job. Robin divided his time between work and home. He would drive his old comma van up to the beach at the start of each week and he'd sleep in the van. He parked it in the school grounds or beside the road. Whenever there'd be a complaint about where he parked his van, he'd just move it to a different area. Then on Fridays after school, he would drive back home for the weekend. Only months before his deaths, the schoolhouse at Tyree Beach was finally vacated and he moved in, but he still went home on the weekends. Robin was worried about Margaret and reached out to a close friend that they'd met back in Gorlam. Margaret told the friend that she believed she'd had multiple previous lives and that she was related to Churchill, Egyptian emperors, and that the two of them themselves had been related in a past life. When they went shopping, Margaret would take a key ring or necklace and swing it before making decisions. Unfortunately, the Every Street house, which was more than 100 years old, was falling down around the family. It was damp, cold and dirty. The Baines' deplorable housekeeping did not help and Margaret, who liked to stay in bed until lunchtime, was loath to spend any money on it because she wanted to tear the place down. In its place, Margaret planned to build some kind of retreat. There would be several rooms and people would come and meditate and find peace. The refuge would also house the family. With two master bedrooms joined by a bathroom on the upper floor, in her diary Margaret wrote of how God had told her she needed to build this house and design it herself so she took care of all the plans. The master bedrooms were said to be for her and David. As David pointed out to friends, Robin was not involved in the planning. He was not wanted in their new house, or the whole family for that matter, even though Robin remained the sole breadwinner. The family lived a frugal life with Robin's salary of $500 as their sole income. But contrary to the dire poverty image that Margaret and Robin liked to cultivate, they had substantial assets that, if sold, could actually have funded a new house. Whether there was enough to fund Margaret's grand plan is not known, but they could have afforded at least a more modest dwelling. The Baines owned a section in Fungaday and another in Bundaberg near Brisbane. They had about $60,000 invested with friends and a substantial amount in an overseas bank account. In 1994, that was enough to buy a couple of reasonable secondhand homes in Dunedin. However, the fly in the ointment was Robin, whose agreement was needed to get the assets liquidated to build the sanctuary. He still held the trump card and may have been insisting on at least his fair share of the proceeds that would not have left enough for the sanctuary. If Robin wanted a divorce, the sanctuary could not be built. He was hardly going to agree to selling the assets and be left with nothing. And David wasn't contributing much to the household financially. In 1991, David had a disastrous year at university. He failed all his papers and spent the next two years on the dole, working around the house and doing his paper run, while continuing his singing and acting through Dunedin Opera and Opera Alive. Now, we need to talk about Laniette, who plays a considerable role in the controversy surrounding this case. Laniette left home when she was 16 to go flatting. 
She began working as a freelance escort as she was not eligible for the benefit. She told friends that her parents refused to sign the papers that would give her an underage living allowance. Laniette had a cell phone registered to the name of Dean Cottle, who her friends said was her pimp. This relationship was incredibly toxic. Dean was blackmailing Laniette, threatening to tell her family about the sex work unless she had sex with him whenever he wanted. Laniette became heavily reliant on marijuana to cope with the stress and trauma of everything she was going through. But Laniette also had quite the history of opening up to virtual strangers about all the things going on in her life. She told her PE teacher that she'd been raped and had a baby in Papua New Guinea. But her story changed over time and she later said that she'd had an abortion. She also told him that she tried to kill herself by cutting her wrists and that Arawa had saved her. But during a gym session where the teacher saw her arms, he said he never saw any signs of scarring or injury to her wrists. Friends said that Laniette deteriorated throughout 1993. They said she spoke warmly about all her family but that she had a strange attitude towards David. She said that David was very jealous of all her relationships. A friend who saw Laniette in the months before her passing said that Laniette was very disturbed and agitated. She kept mentioning David again and again, that she was scared of upsetting him and afraid of what he might think of some of the things that she was doing. Robin had been principal of Tyree Beach Primary School for three years at this point. He was well liked by his co-workers even though he was hopeless with admin and paperwork. He loved his kids and cared a lot about technology. He introduced three computers into a small class of 11 which was very innovative for 1993. Despite the war against Margaret, Robin remained very active and involved with his children. He spoke proudly of his family to his colleagues and always attended their school productions and events. David was the apple of his mother's eye and firmly on board with the plans to build his mother's dream sanctuary. It was said that he had usurped his father's role as head of the household. David would later say that Robin had Laniette, but he, Arawa and Stephen were with their mother. By 1994, David appeared to have his life on the rails again. He'd enrolled in the University of Otago in some classics and music papers. He was making new friends, he was heavily involved in opera productions, and was also in the classic department production of Oedipus Rex. He'd also begun taking an interest in German that he wanted to study privately to further his budding opera career. He turned down a job of four attendant as offered by his uncle so that he could stay at home and help out around the house. He wanted to help his mother with the garden and with plans for the sanctuary. And although David's life appeared to be looking up, tensions were high in the Bain household. Arawa told her friends that she was afraid to go home because she was scared of David. She couldn't go anywhere or do anything without David tagging along. She didn't want to be alone with David because he was controlling and manipulative. She hadn't gone out with her friends in months because David always insisted on driving the car and tagging along as well. Laniette was still flatting in central Dunedin and had spoken to a neighbour recently saying that she didn't want to go anywhere near her family home or her father. She told the stranger that she hardly knew that her father Robin had been touching her in inappropriate ways. But despite her apparent fears, she joined her father to live at Tyree Beach with him, but retained her flat in Dunedin, keeping a foot in both camps it seems. One day, Laniette showed up at David's university, but instead of finding him she found his friend. He said she appeared visibly agitated and told him that she wanted David to speak to Margaret about her coming home because she couldn't stand what he was doing to her anymore. The friend assumed that she'd been talking about Robin, but she could equally have been talking about her pimp. We don't know. Meanwhile, Robin appeared to be going downhill too and his friends and colleagues grew increasingly concerned. He seemed disheartened that he hadn't gotten interviews for any other jobs even though he'd been trying for years and it was like he'd lost his passion for teaching. Arawa was working hard in her second year of teacher's college while completing university papers. She had a part-time job working at the museum cafe with some babysitting jobs on the side. 
She was well liked and respected by her friends and in her final year of high school she'd been head girl. But friends said Arawa was carrying some sort of big family secret that she seemed too afraid to tell for fear of somebody overhearing her. Arawa told her friends that she was scared of David because he had a gun. He used it to shoot rabbits but it made the family feel unsafe. Later the full statement from Arawa's friend was made public. Apparently Arawa had said that David had actually threatened the family with the gun to control their access to the lounge. During the first six months of 1994, David became closer and closer with a female friend whose identity is protected. He'd met her during a production of The Tempest. In the six days before the murders, David arranged a meeting with a person who was also a friend of his anonymous theatre friend. David had the same habit of rambling on as his mother and he did not hold back with this person. Over several hours, David told her of not having any friends. He said that everyone he's ever loved, he's ended up hurting. He said that the family didn't want Robin around and that he should recognize when he's not wanted. David told the friend about how he'd been working on the garden to get it ready for the new sanctuary project and that this had caused several upsets between him and his dad. Robin had tipped out a trailer load of soil on the wrong part of the garden where he'd been working. He told her that the reason Laniette had moved out is that she felt her father had been unfairly treated by the family and that this had caused a big divide. As he left her house that day, he stood in the dining room and told her that he had this feeling that something horrible was going to happen to the family. David also told his confidant that he had regular episodes of deja vu. He said he saw something happen and he would know that he had seen it before and that he knew exactly what was going to happen next. On the Friday before the killings, David told a friend that he'd fallen over in his music teacher's garden and broken his glasses. That same Friday, Laniette's friend and pimp, Dean Cottle, said he bumped into Laniette on the main street in Dunedin. According to Mr. Cottle, Laniette told him that she was going to make a fresh start. Her parents had been questioning her and she was going to tell them everything. Laniette said to him that she was going home that weekend to tell the family about everything that had been occurring. She was going to put a stop to everything and she was sick of everyone getting up on her. When Laniette and Dean Cottle met 10 months prior, Laniette had allegedly told him that her father had been having an incestuous relationship with her, that it had started when they lived in Papua New Guinea and it was still continuing now. But on that day of Friday the 17th, she didn't mention anything about the incest allegations. That weekend, the weekend of the murders, the family were going to be all together for the first time in a long time. Apparently, according to witnesses, a family meeting had been called for the Sunday night. Friends say that Laniette had planned to out Robin for incest and or tell them the truth about her sex work. Others say that David himself had called this meeting, although it remains unclear whether he actually did or not. David denies that any such meeting took place. A friend who'd seen Arawa that weekend said that she spoke of wanting to move out of the house to escape the tension in the family. She said she sided with her mother because her father was never there. But Margaret tended to unleash all of her stress on Arawa. She discussed flatting with her friend the following year and seemed excited to start making plans to make that happen. The Saturday before the murders, Robin, Stephen and David were working to fix a spouting problem on the side of the house. A neighbour noticed ladders leaning up against the house but said that there wasn't a lot of communication going on between the three of them. On the Sunday before the killings, Robin drove David and Stephen to St Kilda Beach to take part in the annual Dunedin Polar Plunge. Later that day, Robin attended a seminar on genealogy and David went to choir practice to rehearse for the play Oedipus Rex. The Baines were apparently going to have a family meal on Sunday night but it appears that Margaret didn't go to much trouble. They had microwaved fish and Lania and David went down to the local fish 
fish and chip shop to pick up some chips. We only have David's word for what occurred that Sunday night before the shootings. According to David, no family meeting was held, and only in his first trial in 1995 did he recall hearing raised voices from his bedroom. According to a statement, he was in bed by 9pm and the family had watched a nature video together. His parents then decided to switch the channel to watch a thriller movie and David doesn't remember there being any upset over this. However, one of the first things David told police after the shootings is that he'd had a fight with his father over the use of the chainsaw before he went to bed. Robin had wanted to take it with him down to Tyree Beach and David wanted to keep it at home so he could continue work on the garden. But what he didn't tell police is that not long before this fight, David had actually had a bad accident and badly cut his foot with the chainsaw. David said he woke up at some stage after he went to bed and heard a car drive off. This had to be either Margaret or Robin heading to the local cash machine at about 11.30pm. They would have been going to pay off the credit card that they religiously did to avoid incurring interest. David's supporters say that this drive must have happened after Laniette disclosed the incest allegations and Margaret was going to the cash machine to secure cash for the next day. But if that's true, she didn't clear out the account and she still managed to remember to pay off the full amount of the credit card. By 10 past 7 the next morning, five members of the Bain family had been killed and New Zealand's most controversial murder case was just beginning. Police finally started moving the bodies of the slain family late this afternoon. The sole survivor was comforted by ambulance staff shortly after the carnage in Dunedin. Police were called to this house in Anderson's Bay just after 7 o'clock and it turned out to be a house of horrors. The police made a search of the house and located the bodies of five persons. All had been shot in the head and a 22 caliber rifle was also located at the address near one of the bodies. Some of the deceased persons were in bed while others were found on the floor alongside beds. The family of Robin Bain was all but wiped out. Only his eldest son, David, survives of the six. He discovered the bodies after returning from his paper round. Today, neighbours were in shock. Well, it's just horrific. Uh, it's just terrible. Uh, to happen right next door, it's something we read about, we hear about. It's right here. It's, all, it's, it's just terrible. Well, I'm shocked and saddened at the whole thing. I can't understand why it would happen. The three dead Bain children had all attended the nearby high school. The youngest, Stephen, was in the fourth form. We're really starting off a grieving process and it's going to take a, a number of days just to get ourselves back into order again, I think. Mr Bain was the principal at Tidy Mouth School just outside Dunedin. Today it was closed and in mourning. It's believed Mr Bain stayed in the schoolhouse during the week and returned to the family home for some weekends. A friend of the family says the couple had been having some marital problems, but nothing that hinted at the proportion of this tragedy. Police have yet to work out how today's killings happened. Uh, we believe that, uh, that there has been um, a, uh, either a homicide, suicide or a homicide, but our inquiries obviously are directed towards establishing exactly what's happened and we can't reach any conclusion until those inquiries are completed. Neighbours speculate it was a murder-suicide, but police say it will be at least tomorrow afternoon before they have a clearer picture of the Bain tragedy. Richard Langston, 3 National News. Okay, so far we've outlined the actual murders, the family's background, and in part three we're going to discuss the evidence against David and the evidence against Robin. We're going to try to understand what could have driven either of these two to commit such a heinous crime. Now I really feel sorry 
for the children in the Bain house. I feel like they were subjected to so much shit because of Margaret's insane beliefs and it's quite sad to think that Margaret probably had an actual mental illness that went untreated for so long. I mean, imagine if she'd gotten help, maybe none of this would have happened because either way, regardless of who was responsible, it's pretty clear that it would have been a difficult house to live in. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What do you think so far? From what you've heard, who do you think might have had more of a reason to snap? Let me know in the comment section below. Otherwise, stay tuned for part three and we will tie it all up and let you know where things are with the case today. Thank you so much for watching. I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye.